Well, it's time for Tuesday's Richie Allen Radio Show. Welcome to it, live from BBG Towers here in the great city of Salford. I look forward to hearing from you during the programme. You can comment on my website, richieallen.co.uk. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on RichieAllen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. I'll be joined in hour two by Councillor James Rogerson of Ribble Valley. That's in Lancashire. Really interesting gentleman. Had a conversation with him earlier today. He saw through... What has been happening for the last 18 months, he saw through it from the very beginning, did Jim Rogerson, Conservative councillor, although he might have left the Conservative Party. We'll find out with Jim in the second hour. You don't want to miss him. You do not want to miss him. Before that, it's an old friend of the programmes. He's not been on for a long time. John Kleichek has a Master's in English. He has taught college English. He has written excellent books on the technocratic globalisation of education in the US and around the world. I've invited him back on to talk generally about where things are going. John Kleichek will be live on the programme in the first hour. That's a pretty busy Tuesday then on your Richie Allen show, brought to you in association with me, Richie Allen. That's about the size of it. Ah, Jesus, what have I done there now? I've done something very stupid. I'll sort it in a moment. I've, I've broken something. I actually have. Hang on. Yeah, I've broken something in studio, but it's not something that's going to affect the program. Hang on. Oh, he says as he talks off mic. Do you know what? I'm such a perfectionist. I just couldn't leave that lying on the ground. So I had to pick it up. Right, it's... Yes, it's going to be busy. So before we hear from our guests, let's you and I talk. Scottish people, well, they've been asked to limit socialising. To limit socialising. They've been asked to limit it to three households at a time in the run-up to Christmas because of the Omicron variant. Or Omicron, whichever you prefer. Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's First Minister, said the advice wouldn't apply on Christmas Day. (laughs) Oh, and she said plans shouldn't be cancelled. Do you want to hear from the Cupid stunt that is Nicola Sturgeon? She's awful, isn't she? Let's hear from her. Go on, Nicola. Presiding officer, my hardest request today is of the general public. My hardest request today? today is of the general public. I want to be clear, I am not asking anyone to cancel Christmas. Oh, thank God. But in the run-up to and in the immediate aftermath of Christmas, I am asking everyone to reduce as far as possible and to a minimum the contacts we have with people in other households. And I will say more about Christmas Day in a moment. I'll say more about Christmas Day. What man... What has happened to man, the emasculation of man? I've said this before, it isn't new, I am repeating myself. What legitimate man could take orders from the state of the thing that is Nicola Sturgeon? Where where are Scotsmen? How could you listen to that thing? Look at it. Unbecoming, is it, language like that for a professional broadcaster? I don't care anymore. 
Look at the filth of Nicola Sturgeon. Who could listen to that and say, oh, oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that then? Huh? We are not banning or restricting household mixing in law as before. We understand the negative impact this has on mental health and well-being. But we are asking everyone, and we will issue strong guidance to this effect, to cut down as far as possible the number of people outside our own households that we are interacting with just now. This will help break transmission chains. Yeah, like it did last time. Anyway... So my key request today is this, before and immediately after Christmas, please minimise your social mixing with other households as much as you can. But from midnight on Christmas Eve until midnight on Christmas Day... However, if you do plan on socialising, either at home or in indoor public places, we are asking that you limit the number of households represented in your group to a maximum of three and make sure you test before you go. Make sure you test before you go, just in case you're carrying the deadly plague that is the Omicron variant, Nicola Sturgeon. I don't care. Misogynist? No, it isn't misogynistic. I don't have a misogynistic bone in my body. How could any man? What's happened to men that you would listen to that and accept that, you know? It's time for men to be men again, isn't it? What would Gary Cooper have said to, to Nicola Sturgeon? Yeah, answers on a postcard, maybe. That's Sturgeon there. Speaking from Holyrood today. My Scottish accent is just as good as all the other accents I can't do. By the way, MPs today here in England have been debating whether or not to give the government the go-ahead to bring in Plan B restrictions. This is laughable. The government has already done it. This is a retrospective vote. It's a waste of oxygen because the Labour Party has said, we'll back you. We'll back you. It's all a formality. Vaccine passports are now a way of life here in the UK. I did say this, didn't I, months ago, and I, I wasn't too upset about it then. I might be a little bit more upset about it now, but I'll get over it. I said back then I'd probably never, months ago, go to a concert. I'd never go to the footy, the cricket, rugby league again. And people are queuing around the block. I do pass the jabatoir on my run, I, I have passed a jabatoire on my run ever since they started rolling out these jabs. Lately, it had been pretty quiet. This morning, you'd have thought that Daniel O'Donnell was performing in the jabatoire. Loads of middle-aged women rushing to be jabbed. Not because, as my learned guests said last night, not because they're terrified of catching Omicron. They're not. They couldn't give an arse. It's because they want to be able to go on holiday and go to the cinema and what not. Ah, well. Sajid Javid is the UK's health secretary. He was speaking this afternoon at Westminster to open the debate on Plan B measures. No need for a debate, as I've already said, it's going through. Javid wanted to make a point about Omicron case numbers. And you should listen to this. We can see that the growth in Omicron cases here in the UK is now mirroring the rapid increase that we are seeing in South Africa. And the current observed doubling time is around every two days. Although yesterday uh, we reported there were 4,713 confirmed cases of Omicron in the UK, the UK HSA estimate that for the number of daily infections was 42 times higher at 200,000. 
Oh, you have to love that. 42 times higher at 200,000. Yeah, I know that yesterday I said to you that there might be 4,600 cases in the UK. But the UK Health Security Agency says that it might be 42 times more than that. Scientists have never seen, never seen... They have never seen. ...a COVID-19 variant that's capable of spreading so rapidly. So we have to look at what we can do what can to we slow do? Omicron's advance. You know, the UK Health Security Agency, Desmond Swain, conservative backbencher, laughed at the title of that organisation today and labelled it Stalinist. He's not wrong. The UK Health Security Agency. It's Orwellian in the extreme. Six hours before... Heinz Bean for a head, Sajid Javid lied through his teeth about 200,000 Omicron infections because he was lying. He knew when he was speaking that he was lying. He's a scumbag. Six hours before that, a scientist was asked to explain how the figure of 200,000 was reached. Her name is Naomi Forrester Asoto. She's a virologist at Keele University. She was on BBC Radio 5 Live. The dude asking the question is Rick Edwards. Let's try and dig into some of these numbers. So the confirmed cases of Omicron yesterday was 4,700, I think. Um, But the health secretary, Sajid Javid, says that there's probably 200,000 daily Omicron infections. Where are these numbers coming from? 200,000 is a bigger number than than we might have expected. They're coming from Uranus, I would imagine. What did Naomi say, the expert? Listen, this is telling. He's actually asked a good question. I nearly fell over listening to that this morning. Good question. How have they come up with this number out of the blue, she says? Yeah, so, I mean, again, the the issue, of course, is always that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic transmission where, you know, people don't actually know that they're infected. Um, And that's very... What? The issue is actually asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic transmission where people don't know that they're infected. He asked you, how did you get to 200,000? Very difficult to capture and you have to try and... um, sort of work that out from... From guessing. How many people actually then using... So using those antibody reports that, you know, you've got those... What antibody reports? Group of people who are constantly taking antibody tests. Um, so that the group of people, are they elves? Are they dwarves? And they're constantly taking antibody tests and supplying them to a laboratory at the UK Health Security Agency. And from those antibody tests, they make up a number like 200,000. Um, and sort of give an indication of how many people actually sort of what we call seroconvert, that show antibodies. What? Um, gives an indication of how many people are actually infected compared to how many people showed symptoms. And I think that's probably what they're sort of looking at there. It's probably what they're looking at there. Tell us the truth, Naomi. They're lying. Um, additionally, you know, it does seem as though a lot of the symptoms may be more like a common cold. So a lot of people may think that actually they've just got a cold rather than... That's probably because they have a cold. It's the middle of December. It's when people get colds. The coronavirus, which... So maybe missing it. Mm. Yeah, a lot might be missing it or not realising that they have it. And the common cold is coronavirus. Um, how effective is, is the booster at preventing... So, so rather than call her out on that voluminous avalanche of bullshit that she just fed him, 
he moves on to a question about how effective the boosters are. Instead of saying, Naomi, it sounds to me like you said there that they've got a few people that they constantly do antibody tests on and somehow they extrapolate from that the number 200,000. That sounds crap to me. But of course, Rick, BBC Edwards, of course, didn't say any such thing. I'm none the wiser. <laughs> Let's just say the UK Health Security Agency made it all up. Remember yesterday, they told us that one person died of Omicron. One person in the UK died of Omicron. Dominic Grab is the Justice Secretary and also the Deputy, Pro Deputy Prime Minister. He was on Good Morning Britain with Adil Ray this morning, who asks another good question too in a day from UK broadcasters. If this keeps up, there'll be no need for me by February. But of course it won't keep up. Have a listen to this, a good question about the person who died of Omicron. Okay, this person who's died of Omicron, very sad news. Is it of Omicron, so cause of Omicron, or with Omicron? And, and the cause of death is something else. That's quite important. I think that's been a challenge uh, to, pro to, to, to demonstrate the, uh, the, the, if you like, the primary cause of death, mm. um, as opposed to uh, people that die of, and a lot of the people that have suffered from coronavirus, and I'm sure it's the same with Omicron, but, being elderly people yeah. with multiple conditions. I think you're, if you listen to the practitioners, it is often very difficult okay. on, a, on, a, on a death certificate to say definitively what someone died of if they have multiple conditions. But, but we put COVID down anyway. You see, the truth eventually outs, even on mainstream television and radio programmes. Just listen to Rab again. It's so important to listen to this. And a lot of the people that have suffered from coronavirus, and I'm sure it's the same with Omicron, but, being elderly people yeah. with multiple yeah. conditions. I think you're, if you listen to the practitioners, it is often very difficult on a, on, a, on a death certificate to say definitively what someone died of if they have multiple conditions. Yes, but it doesn't stop them putting coronavirus on the death death certificate anyway, does it, Dominic? I mean, come on, you know. I, I saw that live this morning and I'm leaning on the edge of my sofa and I'm looking at Adil Ray in the eyes, the, the presenter, and I'm trying to move. I don't have the skills of Peter Ebden or Mark Boyersky. I'm trying to send him some energy to go after Rab and say, well, it's all a load of bollocks then, isn't it, Dominic? They're putting COVID on the death certificate of people, people that were at death's door anyway. And you said to us yesterday, somebody died of Omicron. And now you're telling us that, well, it's actually quite difficult to say, really. Mother of divine Jesus. What are you going to do? It's uh, 15 minutes past the hour, by the way. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show. Tobias Elwood is a Tory party MP. He's also a former soldier. He reached the rank of captain. He was on with Kay Burley this morning on Sky News. He was asked what does he make of the measures and the efforts to offer every adult a booster by the end of the month, Tobias Elwood the Tory. So it's not thought through. And as I say, it's taking the spotlight away from the critical issue to do with how do we get through uh, this uh, this challenge of, a, of the Omicron variant. It's the right national mission. There's no doubt about it. One million jabs a day. But if I can just say, my concern is this is a huge order for uh, putting strain on our NHS. Our attitude has always been one last push and we're going to get out of the woods. But let's not forget that 40% of the world is still unvaccinated and another mutation is really likely. 
And we need to another mutation is really likely. We need to change this mindset from planning in weeks or months to years. We're likely to need a fourth, fifth, or sixth jab in readiness <laughs> for further waves. And my criticism. What jab are you on? Number five. Have you had your sixth? Have you? You lucky bastard. That means you can go to to Butlins. I can't. No, I can go to Cleethorpe's. Yeah, they've got a special place there for people who've had five jabs. That's how it's going to be. This is actually is more wider. Is the government's ability to do crisis management? The government machine, however well intentioned, has not adapted to handling and enduring emergency. We're still using the same old cabinet construct. It's tried, it's tested, but it's too so slow. It's too siloed in its decision making. If we created a Brexit department and a climate change department to deal with those issues, why not create one to deal with this pandemic? It's two mm. years gone. We've got another two years to go at least. What? We have two more years to go at least. Kay Burley asks him a question, but he... Not so much that he ignores the question. He continues down the road of how the government can deal with these things in the future. And that's when it gets very interesting. Many of your colleagues who look as though they will be voting against the government certainly have suggested to us that that's what they're going to do. That The reason that they are objecting to the COVID pass is because they say, and one of them rather distastefully, comparing it to Nazi Germany and having to show your papers. Oh yeah, that's Marcus Fish, the Yeovil MP, who said on BBC Radio that it was basically era papira bitter and Nazi Germany, right? I distance myself from that comment and I'm afraid it, it diminishes this wider debate that I'm trying to focus on. I make it really, really clear that we need to get better at handling this. We cannot have this stop-start approach to dealing with this pandemic. I don't know who wears that fluorescent jacket as the fire evacuation officer in, 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 in you know, Sky's offices, but if it's that sort of person that should now be trained to be a vaccinator in every business, in every school, in every charity. We should have walk-in centres that are permanently based for the moment on every high street. Part of our army should be dedicated these battalions to be trained to given the variety of support that we've already seen. And that's, if we have that approach, then we can lean into this. The nation sees that we have a plan and they can buy into that as well. And we can actually get ahead of this wave and indeed the next wave rather than the moment playing catch up each time. Did you catch every word of that. I don't know who wears that fluorescent jacket as the fire evacuation officer in, 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 in you know, Sky's offices. Right. I don't know who wears the fluorescent jacket and looks after the fire evacuation procedures for Sky, but that person... But it's that sort of person that should now be trained to be a vaccinator. Wow. In every business. Every business. In every school. Schools. In every charity. Charities. We should have walk-in centres that are permanently based for the moment on every high street. Part of our permanently based for the moment. He's never heard of oxymorons. Our army should be dedicated to battalions to be trained to given the variety of support that we've already seen. Battalions should be trained to give a variety of support that we've already seen. That is absolutely crazy, isn't it? Anything to say to Elwood Spike? Anything? You daft prick. Absolutely right. Gene? You stupid, ignorant son of a bitch, dumb bastard! Jesus Christ, I've met some dumb bastards in my time, but you outdo them all. Oh, Christ, Monty? Release the hounds. Yeah. There should be vaccinators in every business. There should be walk-in jab centres basically on every street corner. And battalions of army people going out and jabbing people. And presumably, if he was uh, allowed to flesh that out a bit more, 
he would have said to persuade people that they should have their jabs. It's all gone a bit mad, hasn't it? It is 20 minutes past the hour. This is your Richie Allen show. There is nothing like it anywhere in the world. I'm Richie Allen. Coming up in a moment, John Klychek will be live. And a little bit later on, Councillor Jim Rogerson will be on the programme, a Lancashire-based councillor. Maybe formerly Conservative Party. I'll have to ask Jim about that. Had a conversation with him this morning. Got to give Tony Gosling a big shout out because Tony recommended that I get in touch with Jim. In fact, put me in touch with Jim. Great guy is Tony Gosling. Bilderberg.org, of course, and thisweek.org.uk. Back in a moment with my first guest. You don't want to miss him. 23 and a half minutes past the hour. The boss and ghosts on The Richie Allen Show. Live from Salford. Thanks for choosing it. My first guest is a top, top man. He really is. We've had a couple of fascinating, enlightening and entertaining conversations with him in the past couple of years. He wrote the book School World Order, The Technocratic Globalisation of Corporatised Education. I can't recommend that highly enough. He was very kind at the time to give me a copy of it. It is, it is essential reading for parents, for grandparents, for aunts and uncles, anybody who's got anything to do with children. Uh, he's got a master's in English. He's taught college. Um, he has appeared everywhere on Rents News, Activist Post, Dissident Voice, Op-Ed News. He's been on davidike.com. He's worked with Gareth Ike as well at uh, Right Now. Let's welcome back to the programme the, the absolute gentleman that is John Kleichek. John, welcome back. How are you? I'm okay, Richie. It's really, really good to be back. Pleasure and honour. It's fantastic. And I wanted to, to, to ask you back today. We've got till the top of the hour. We, we, we ordinarily would have longer, but it's great to have you for 30, 35 minutes. I wanted you to, to come back really and just to talk generally because you're a smart guy. You've got, um, you, you, you know, you're right across all of the agendas that we're watching unfold, that we're witnessing. I know that um, we've spoken in the past about the impact of these things on children and we can do again today. But um, just to get your initial thoughts, John, on what's been happening in recent weeks here in the UK and Europe in particular, where things have taken a, well, a, you know, a proper Orwellian turn towards mandatory vaccination and lockdowns for the unvaccinated. Things are getting really serious now. How do you see it? Yeah, it's it's pretty scary. Uh, you know, it's pretty dark. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the beta test for what they'll do anywhere else uh, worldwide. I mean, you know, Australia was kind of uh, up in front on that. And now I know in, in Austria, uh, it sounds like you can't even really leave the house unless you have the, the, the passport. Sounds like they want to do something very similar in the UK. I know they want to basically go back to full, full lockdown. It sounds like, uh, and you know, over here, uh, we're not, we're not there yet, but you know, we're, we're, we're basically maybe a month or so behind, you know, uh, the the rest of the world, as far as that goes. Uh, and I'm, I'm really hoping y'all can, uh, can put a stop to it and push back because if they get a hold over there, uh, anywhere else, I'm sh- I'm sure they they'll get the green light and they'll try to ram it through harder here. There's a little bit of pushback here and there. Uh, one thing that that is really uplifting about what's going on over in, in uh, Europe and in Australia is at least I mean as is, is, is draconian and, and uh, horrific as it is, 
a lot of protests, a lot of people standing up, a lot of people doing stuff. Uh, not really happening like that over here, you know, in New York and California. There's been some rallies, New York more so than California, but I'm in Illinois and Illinois is, I mean, there's nothing going on. I've, I've been trying to organize with some people. Uh, there's a group that I belong to. It's called uh, uh, Students and Workers for Choice. And uh, it's a group across the country. We meet virtually. We try to set up rallies. And, you know, there's been people popping in there from all over. But I've yet to find too many people from the Midwest and, and actually nobody from Illinois. So, uh, my, I'm with y'all. My heart is with you. I, I hope I hope that uh, y'all can uh, set the precedent to to put a stop to some of this. What about your own situation in Illinois? If memory serves, I read a story recently. I think you've got a guy called Pritzker. Is that the guy, or is it somewhere? Is it Pritzker? Your yeah, governor that's there? Yeah, that's him. You got it. That's the governor. That's yep. the governor. Yeah. Now I've spoken to some some of my guests recently have been from southern states and. You know, in, in many cases, they've been pretty happy with um, what they see as their governors kind of fighting back against the federal government when it comes to mask mandates and vaccine passports. What's this guy Pritzker like? I believe this guy's got one eye on the White House. So is he fully on board with the agenda there, John? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he kicked it off. Um, so, you know, Biden did his, you know, they call it a mandate. Really, the only part of it that's a mandate is for the federal workers, everything else has been uh, he, he has encouraged the governors to mandate the vaccines for the healthcare workers and the uh, school employees, and then he's uh, trying to get OSHA, which is a, it's an organization that regulates the, the workplace over here. Uh, he's trying to get them to mandate the vax for uh, any company that has a hundred employees or more. Uh, but before he he uh, issued any of those. Uh, Pritzker uh, got in front of it, and he mandated everybody in Illinois. Uh, well, well, he, he mandated all the healthcare workers and all of the school employees uh, to get the the jab. Um, and I was able to dodge that because I I always knew this was coming. And so you know, right before he he made that announcement, they asked us if we wanted to go back in person, which which I did. Uh, that's the best part of teaching is. Uh, especially as a, as a rhetoric and an English professor is the, is the discussions you get to have with the students, you know, in person, like a human being. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew that that was coming. So I told them, I just said, I don't feel comfortable. And so I'm still virtual, which means I'm, uh, I'm still, I'm feeding the digital machine that I wrote about. Yeah. But, you know, if I'm in a rock and a hard place, uh, if I have to either get the jab or feed the machine, I guess for now, I'll feed the machine and, you know, live to, to push back another day. But, you know, with, with, with Pritzker, you know, his, his foundation, uh, which I guess is in a blind trust now. So he would say that he doesn't have any hands on it, but, uh, the, the family foundation, uh, is invested in the, some of the testing companies, the, some of the companies that test for COVID. And then something else that I discovered recently, I've been writing for Unlimited Hangout recently, uh, and my most recent article was about this push for the vaccine passports in schools. Well, one of the things that I stumbled onto was, I want to say it's 2018, uh, and there was the Illinois Blockchain Task Force, and uh, that was by the Illinois General Assembly. Uh, and this would have been under Pritzker's administration. And this this document, which you can find in, in my most recent Unlimited Hangout article, uh, demonstrates uh, that they've had this plan to, to usher in blockchain digital ID that would uh, service a whole sorts of um, public services. So 
for instance, they, there's a there's an application for this blockchain digital ID where you would get your uh, your SNAP or your WIC. Those are acronyms for the uh, public aid. So like basically food stamps and welfare stuff, so social service stuff. Uh, and you would you would need to have this blockchain ID to get it. And then they would like even like they wouldn't just give you money with your ID, but like they would give you your food, your food stamps based on uh, these healthy eating tokens. So like basically telling you what to spend it on. Uh, and as I've written about extensively, these vaccine passports, uh, in particular, the digital blockchain passports are basically a Trojan horse or they to get their foot in the door so they can expand out that blockchain path platform for ubiquitous digital ID that'll plug into the social credit system. Can you, in in the most basic layman's terms, explain, for me as much as for the listeners, what's blockchain digital ID? What does it mean? So blockchain is just a type of distributed ledger technology, okay? And so most people are probably familiar with blockchain in terms of its applications for cryptocurrency. Yeah. And so the way that the ledger works there is it keeps a ledger of every coin that's created and every transaction uh, that the coin goes through. So whoever has it and what you spend it on, there's a ledger that basically keeps record of who had it, where to go to, what was purchased, etc. So that's the currency application. But you could you could also attach other types of records to that. In other words, your immunization records, right? And so you can yeah. have a ledger of which booster are you on? And then based on that ledger, that ledger could uh, be used to either permit or restrict your access to various public and private services, such as access to school. I totally get it. You've, you've explained it brilliantly. And I've been reading you on Unlimited Hangouts. Folks, read John, John Kleinchek. I, I can't recommend him highly enough. Read the book that I mentioned earlier on. I'll put a link to it on Facebook. I'll put a link to it on uh, the website, I promise. John, what you've described there, it, it seems to me, if you are setting up such systems, the reason you would set up such systems is eventually to collapse the financial system that already exists. Is that is, That must be the plan, right? To end the way... We conduct financial transactions today, which is we, you know, we have notes or we have coins or we have money in our bank accounts and we can move that money between our bank accounts. But the government or the authorities, well, they don't really, well, we think they don't, they shouldn't have any access to that. Is that what's going to happen? They're going to collapse the current financial system and bring in a new digital uh, currency system because uh, it makes sense listening to what you've just said there. Yeah, I definitely think that's one big part of it. Uh, I mean, you know, another level is is the social credit system. So not just how the the money is is uh, transacted, but basically also what can be monetized or tokenized. In other words, behavior. But you know, if you recall, uh, right before uh, you know COVID was announced and we went into lockdown, there was all sorts of red flags about. Uh, in particular, in the United States, the financial system sort of. Um, getting close to that that collapse that that uh, tipping point and it was i believe the uh, the the yield curve on the bond market right was such that uh it was indicating that uh you know that we were getting close to that point and um so i really think that you know the timing of this uh not just to 
to usher it in. But, you know, I mean, I think that the system was was already going to collapse with all the, the fiat money that they've been printing and printing. Uh, and so this was just a cover to, you know, uh, since since it was imploding to begin with, um, that this was the, this was the transition period. And, you know, I you know, they probably had it uh, in mind f- for a lot longer than that, because you can look at something like uh, ID 2020, which is 2018, same year as the Illinois Blockchain Task Force, where they're basically getting ready to put in this this digital ID system. So, you know, whether or not it's opportunistic because the financial system is going to collapse, they want to go ahead and put this in or they're collapsing it on purpose so that they can put this in. This is the situation we're in, right? This is the situation we're in. I get the social credit angle of it. So it's a future world where your ability to do business depends on state assent and the assent is or or whoever controls the centralized digital currency or the blockchain ids whoever controls that your ability to do business will need their assent and their assent will be tied into how you behave yeah yeah and and also how the companies uh behave as yeah. well so so you'll if you ever look at some of these companies on their about pages uh you'll see sometimes they have an esg uh, acronym in there, and that means environmental, social, and governance. And so they basically have corporate social credit scores that uh, they use this impact financing to fund um, different social projects. So, you know, it could be to help with poverty. It could be to help with sustainability. It could be to help with gender equity, right? And so they'll give these impact loans out uh, in the realm of education. It could be uh, to help you get to on your what they call your career pathways, and um, one of the one of the uh, benefits of this is instead of traditional investing is that uh, you don't actually so your social score goes up as a company, which can um, can get other can open up more investments. But then also when you when you do these impact investments, like for the schools, if if you pay into the to what the students uh, on their curriculum to get them into that career pathways, if they don't perform and uh, finish their their digital modules on time and uh, get into the career pathway that you're funding, well, that company doesn't even ha- actually have to uh, pay out that money, right? It, like so so it's an, so it's another way, and it's also subsidized by the government as well. Uh, but I should also uh, add one thing about the whole social credit aspect in the blockchain is that, you know, one of the main um, uh, service providers for the for the passport over here is uh, IBM. And it's called the Excelsior Passport in uh, New York. And, you know, we know that the history of IBM goes back not just to the, you know, uh, census collection, but they also... On their punch card system, they were tabulating all that uh, basically eugenics data through the concentration camps That's in right. Nazi Germany, right? right? And so, you know, just like that was a method of basically biopsychosocial control, population control. Uh, that's that's basically what this is. It's just a little more sophisticated uh, and not as ham-fisted with you know sterilization, euthanasia, etc. John Kleinchek is our guest, folks. Um, you've got to read the book School World Order The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education John is writing a lot for Unlimited Hangouts Unlimited Hangout, excuse me uh, Check him out uh, You'll find him everywhere, John He's done Rents News, he's done David uh, DavidIke.com, Gareth, SGT Report This is very important stuff 
It, it's huge, this. I want to ask you this, because I know it's not very, very young children, but I know it's young men and women that you teach and that you interact with. You might not be aware of this in Illinois today, but the Irish government has conceded today that around one in five young men and somewhere north of two women in five, two young women in five, are depressed. They're properly depressed. And they're they're, they're struggling to avoid linking this to lockdowns and, and, and some of the things that we're witnessing now. So it's obviously playing a part. Have you noticed, I know even doing the remote stuff, even doing the stuff online, but are you noticing a change in the behaviour of some of the younger people that you're interacting with, John? Are you noticing a change in their demeanour because of what's been going on in the last 18 months? You know, I, I can't because uh, I don't actually really interact with, with them anymore. So most of the, the courses are what they call asynchronous. So that means I never actually interact with the human being virtually like on the other end of a Zoom call. Now, some of the courses I teach are what's called meeting pattern. And we do meet virtually where it's synchronous, meaning I'm on a, a teleconferencing platform. Um, and so there is some interaction there, but they don't make the students share their cameras. So I, so I have no uh, I can't read any of their facial expressions or body language. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll chime in for, you know, some uh, questions, comments, you know, a little bit of discussion here and there. Uh, it's not it's not at all as robust as, as it has been in, you know, an in-person setting. Uh, maybe maybe that's an indicator of, you know, their their psychological or, or emotional s- status. But uh, for the most part, you know, and this is basically what I wrote about in the book, I'm, I'm largely a, a, a data manager at this point, especially with the asynchronous classes. You know, I build these modules, I put these lessons in here, you know, it's got some, some workshops, you know, video, lecture, some sort of an exercise or activity, depending on what's the lesson. Uh, and then I, I upload it, they go in and they complete it, and then I grade whatever they complete, and I really don't interact with them unless they send me an email so I, I don't have a, a, a good sense of of what they're experiencing, you know, uh, on a personal level. And you miss it, too. You said earlier on you miss that. You know, you miss being in a classroom, staring at, not staring at, but, you know, looking at the whites of their eyes, getting to know them, using your personality and making a connection with them. It's amazing. And to think that you wrote about this, folks, go to schoolworldorder.info schoolworldorder.info John Kleinchek is is our guest here's the question for you now I mentioned you were coming on at the top of the programme um, you're far more popular than you understand you are John um, you've done so much work in the last couple of years I got a load of um, emails from people to say thanks for having him back on number one but number two ask John now that Facebook is talking about the metaverse and yeah. politicians are talking about it, where in the future, maybe in the very near future, people won't leave home, that they will wear a suit and maybe wear a headset and they will feel for all the world, they will feel like they are taking a walk down the, the streets of ancient Rome and they feel they're there and they look over and they see John Kleitschek, the teacher. And John says, right, let's come over here and we'll have a look at the forum. We'll have a look at, we'll, we'll come here and we'll have a look at the Senate. We'll do this, we'll do that. I wonder now how much of the technocratic 
globalization of of schooling was was part of a move towards something like the metaverse. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I wrote. I mean, not the metaverse specifically, but I wrote about the VR, the uh, VR dimensions yeah. of the whole edtech evolution in in my book. It, it goes towards the end. Yeah, I I always thought that it was going to evolve relatively slowly. I thought I would have about ten years uh, since I wrote the book because you know the whole singularity date was like twenty thirty to twenty forty five. So I, I figured I had at least till twenty thirty to kind of explain how this was going to get rolled out. And I would sound less and less crazy as it got rolled out incrementally. And I thought that the progression would be, they would start with the adaptive learning software, which is the modern teaching machine. It's basically, you're it's called, you have Dreambox, Clever Newton. It's, it's all on a screen. So they've got a module that's got, um, you know, a, a video, multiple choice, short answer matching or whatever. Uh, and then they're going to, data mine your cognitive behavioral algorithms based on how you respond and then the next level was going to be the wearables so so the what they call social emotional learning and they have products like something called brain co which is a eeg headband that they use in in china uh it's actually partnered with a uh, harvard over here where the developers called the focus one headband and then and there's others there was the gates foundation's galvanic skin response monitors uh, betsy devos had neurocore OK, she was she was Trump's secretary of education. Uh, and then the next level after the um, the social emotional learning was then going to be either the precision education, which basically uh, looks at your, your DNA and is going to personalize your learning based on your DNA algorithms correlated to the cognitive behavioral and the social emotional learning. And then based on all of that data, right, they would basically take your thinking algorithms, your feeling algorithms, and then your physiological algorithms to build AI or like general, uh, what they call uh, general AI. So basically humanoid AI that is close to consciousness. And then you would be interacting with these artificial intelligence uh, avatars in virtual reality. Uh, I they basically just roll everything out all at all at once, uh, and you know it. it so I, I was I thought it was going to be on a spectrum, but it looks like it's just all part of the same uh, ham-fisted approach that that we're seeing now. And you know it's basically you know we think of transhumanism. That was another element would have been the brain-computer interfaces, uh, but you know you could call this maybe even post-humanism because you know transhumanism I guess suggests that there's going to be part of you that's still human, right? Like you're going to have, you'll be part cyborg and part human, but if you're in the metaverse, you know, you're totally digital, right? And so uh, they're moving fast. They're moving really quickly. If this is a dumb question, just ignore it and, and laugh at me. But if, if I imagine the metaverse to be like Keanu Reeves' Matrix, so it's a world that you enter and while you're in there, it feels pretty real to you. I'm saying this because I do believe that depopulation is part of the agenda that's been unfolding for years and that has accelerated in the last two years. I wonder at any time, would it be... I remember um, I remember Lawrence Fishburne's character saying to, saying to Keanu Reeves' character in The Matrix, he says, if you die in The Matrix, you die in the real world because the body can't survive without the brain. I wonder if they've thought about something like that, you know? get people into the metaverse and if something happens to you in the metaverse well you become brain dead or something does that sound just totally ridiculous to you or should we should, should we just move on 
Yeah, I haven't really haven't really thought about that too much, but I will say that the, you know the term posthumanism, if you uh, the the root of that word, uh, we only use it in one other way in uh, the, the English language, and that is to say posthumous or posthumous, meaning yeah. dead, right? And so you know whether or not you like physically die in there or not, like you're pretty much dead in terms of are you a human anymore? Yeah, so, you know, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. as much as I can say. No, no, it's good. It's just, a, it's a silly aside from me. But I was thinking, you know, if the brain thought it was dead in the metaverse, well, maybe the body, the, the real body in the real world would be unresponsive. It's just stupidity from me. Number of people have mentioned they believe that we're in a simulation anyway. Is that something you've ever considered, Jake? I know that this is very general now and it's a bit tabloidy, but I asked this because I interviewed a lovely guy called Rich Terrell some years ago from, from NASA. He's still a big cheese at NASA. And he came around to the idea we might be in a simulation uh, right now. And, and of course, people like David Icke and, and others for many years have, have thought that we are. What do you think of theories like those? Well, I'm I'm a spiritual dude, and so you know, I at, at one layer uh, I can I can kind of identify with that to the extent that uh, you know I I believe you know I have a metaphysical understanding of the objective universe, right? Uh, and you know, without getting too far into the philosophical weeds, you know, the, my my handle is the Taoist professor. Uh, you know, the Tao is basically a concept of metaphysics. So if you look in the I Ching, you've got the eight elements around that yin-yang. Uh, and so you've got your earth, uh, heaven, fire, water, wind, thunder, lake, mountain. And those are represented by uh, broken lines and solid lines. And literally, the broken lines and the solid lines, which are used to represent uh, the physical universe, um, that's where you get binary code from, right? So instead of broken lines and solid lines, it's zeros and ones. And you can graph out basically all, uh, all of the phenomenon of reality with broken lines and solid lines, zeros and ones, or binary code. So at a certain level, right, I mean, our, our understanding of the universe can be basically broken down through the language of a computer simulation, uh, and that, but there, but I also believe that there is a force that actually holds all that together, which in the, in the I Ching they would call it the Tao, you know, in uh, Christianity they would call it the Logos. But it's this idea that there is a transcendent force that is not material. Um, and so, at, at that level, I can under, I, I do, I, I can, uh, I can see, I can um, uh, gel with the concept of a of a simulation. Um, that said, you know, uh, I, I don't know that that means that we're in a computer simulation, but it, but it does mean that our immediate experience of reality is is not uh, is is not um, is is not obvious, right? I mean, there's there is a deeper layer to it or a deeper meaning to it. Uh, but if they were to eventually get us into this metaverse, like you know, where we're spending more time there than we're not, or if you grow up spending more time in the metaverse than the real world. I imagine that there would come a point when you might not be able to tell the difference between what we could call physical reality and the computer simulation. And at that level, uh, you might not be able to tell. And, and you know, I mean, I, I suppose you could you could maybe speculate way off there that, you know, maybe that's maybe that's where we're at right now, right? Because if you're in that position where you couldn't tell the difference, you you wouldn't know the difference. You wouldn't be able to 
to say whether this was the real universe or that was the which which is the metaverse and which is the the real universe. Now, in the meantime, if you've ever looked at you know some of the uh, images from the metaverse, uh, yeah, it's like a play school cartoon. So I don't think anybody's going to get confused no. about it too soon. But um, so that's that's how I would kind of wax on that. It's a brilliant answer. There's so much in that we could talk. I'd like to talk. I'd like to explore these issues with you on another program. Uh, John, in the early new year, because um, I don't do enough of this and it's very important. number of listeners are asking about the simulation. What does it mean? I'll take a 15-second stab at it and then you can correct me. But from my conversations with people like David and Rich Terrell over the years, the simulation theory is, it's a theory basically that the physical world that we experience isn't real, that it has been constructed somehow. And that we are conscious beings, we are energetic beings of consciousness, and that we ex- we we experience the world around us because we have somehow downloaded it, but it as it isn't actually real. That's my my silly um, definition of it. How would you define it? Yeah, I would be. I would differ a little bit. So, like as I said, like where I, where I can sort of use that framework in terms of. Uh, the, the the idea of a simulated universe uh definitely you know the the idea of consciousness being the the primary mode of of reality right in other words uh as opposed to just your your physical sensations your five yeah, senses yeah, that yeah. your consciousness is something that transcends all of that um and but but you know to the extent that the physical universe is basically, uh, let's just say, a fabrication. Uh, that, to me, leads to a, uh, a philosophical paradigm in which um, your your normal everyday life, your your regular living, you know, you know living by the, the you know the moral code, just you know, uh, your your very mundane human interactions, you know, just. Uh, getting along with other people and trying to be a decent person in a, in a very, you know, uh, normal everyday manner becomes sort of this thing that you have to sort of, um, you have to transcend it or you have to get out of it. And, and in my, uh, my philosophical belief, my spiritual belief, uh, the way the, the, the real, that the truth that the, the way to actually transcend what could be simulated is actually just to, live the moral code and to be a decent person and to connect with your fellow human in whether in this plane, this realm, whether it be fabricated or not. I, I don't know if that's a quite no, it's good. a clear answer. It's a very good answer. No, I get it. I get it completely. Look, I, I'm getting all manner of comments from listeners, listeners who say that they just don't buy it at all because earth, air, fire, water, animals, I could go on, it's real. And, and there will be other listeners who are sympathetic to it. The NASA guy, I asked him why had he come to that conclusion. And would you believe it, my friend, he gave an answer that wasn't as eloquent as yours, but it was um, similar to yours. He talked about the, 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 the binary, the numbers and stuff, you know, the, the mathematics of it, that, that, he could now, that he could now see this. I asked him if it is a construct, a digital construct or a simulated experience, who would have designed it? And he said he couldn't answer that, but maybe some future version of ourselves might be the answer. It was it was fascinating stuff. Look, to go back to the present and the serious things that we're, we're living now, these are very real things, simulation or not, these are real things. I know that your, your, liter, your literary scholarship, um, you know, concentrated on 
Huxley and and uh, George Orwell. It's uh, what does that mean to you, uh, John? You know, in, in in terms of what's unfolding now, it's obvious. I suppose to say Huxley and Orwell, they knew what was coming, but it also must. You know, for, for people who have studied this stuff, it must be quite bizarre now for people like you, you know, experts in this stuff. You've analysed it, you've read it, you've you've taken it apart, you've deconstructed it. And now things are happening, you know, you, the, the Ministry of Truth, you know, all of this stuff is happening. Now. How does that feel for you? You know, I taught Brave New World for basically, I guess, 10 years now. Uh, in my English 102, my research methods class. So they read the novel, uh, and the novel sort of, especially in the first three chapters, you know, sort of gives you a history of the development of eugenics, psychological conditioning, and then Huxley even gets into a virtual reality um, and, you know, the, the, the abolition of the family and... Um, you know, he even starts off uh, looking at. Uh, he describes everything as very sanitized, very clean, and I, you know, I just can't help but think about this world of COVID, where everything has to be cleaned. Uh, and we use that novel to sort of give them a historical background. And then they they write nonfiction papers on the current iterations of you know eugenics becoming later genetic engineering and transhumanism, and then the psychological conditioning is basically. It's basically your uh, your social credit system at a certain level. You know, it's it, so it's re rewards and punishments, stimulus response, and basically hooking everything up to the Internet of Things so that you're constantly being uh, pushed one way or another based on a reward or a punishment. And then, uh, as we just mentioned, you know, you have the metaverse with with virtual reality. Um, so, you know, I've I've looked at it, you know in detail and we you know you probably know and probably your listeners a lot of your listeners know that you know uh all this is brother was was julian huxley he's the guy that set up unesco he was the first director general of unesco he was the president of the british eugenics society uh i've got all of huxley's nonfiction works and actually you know most a lot of people sometimes they think that you know he wrote that as sort of a a warning, I really see it more as kind of like a dark comedy, like tongue-in-cheek thing, because if you read some of his nonfiction, there's an, one of them in particular is called A Note on Eugenics. He literally says, we need a scientific aristocracy, or intellectual aristocracy, rather. Um, no, scientific, intellectual was... Uh, would have been the 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 sort of the pseudo class structure that he would have been a part of, uh, and he also said that he wanted a scientific caste system, and he said you know really nice things about eugenics or at least that we needed it, and he, he even correlated it to some of Leonard Darwin's ideas that. Uh, you know, the, the amount of money you make should determine whether or not you should be able to reproduce. And Leonard Darwin, he was part of the British Eugenic Society. He was also, I think he was a president of it. So, I mean, you know, I see it really more as, as a blueprint. I, I uh, tried to work on that as a project in college. And I, I was, you know, I, I was one, one person told me that I wanted to do an independent study. They said, uh, I, I don't want to be talking about H.G. Wells trying to take over the world for the rest of the semester, which was, you know, sort of a straw man of what I what I was saying. Yeah. The, the person couldn't handle it at the time. But uh, watching it, watching it all come into play. I mean, be, because I read I've read it every semester and it's constantly on my mind. And I've, and I've basically been watching us sort of creep into it. Um, 
I, I suppose the only thing that's, that shocks me about it at this point is the speed at which they're ramming it through at this point. Well, I want to thank you for coming back, John. It's lovely to catch up with you again. Really enjoy having you on the programme. John is the author of School World Order, The Technocratic Globalisation of Corporatized Education, published by Trine Day Books. You can get it online at that big online retailer. It's there. Buy it. Please support him and people like him. You can also find him uh, at his website too, which is schoolworldorder.info. Can I wish you a Merry Christmas, uh, John? And thanks for I know you've got a class to teach, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, and please do come back early in the new year to pick these subjects up again. It's been fascinating. Anytime. Merry Christmas, Richie. Thanks, John. John Kleinchek, folks. Author, uh, educator, a uh, bit of a genius, I think. Lovely to have him back on the programme all the way from Illinois. And uh, John will be back with us early in the new year. Loads of comments on that, unsurprisingly. You can read them by going to richieallen.co.uk. That's my website. At the top of the page, right there, it says Comment Live. That's how you do it, Comment Live. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at richieallen.co.uk. Are you a company based in the northwest of England who want to improve their profile via social media? Yeah! Well, you could go out in the car park and film something on your phone, but it's not very good, is it? No! Sounds terrible, yes! the picture's not that great. Yes! Try Ensign Films. We're a new video production company based in the heart of Manchester. We're really old, we've had loads of experience, and we can work within your budget. Don't go out in the car park with Debbie from Accounts. Seriously. Ensignfilms.co.uk the Richie Allen Show is the world's most popular independent news radio show. Listen on demand via your regular podcast provider. Yes, yeah, some of those podcast providers are messing around with the Richie Allen Show, so the best place to get it is richieallen.podomatic.com. It's live Monday to Thursday at 5 o'clock. If you are new to it, it is a live radio show. It is then archived at podomatic.com. They won't mess with it. They've assured me of that. But Spotify and Apple, iTunes, they do mess with it. They cut it. In fact, somebody working for Spotify admitted to me that somebody was assigned to monitor the programme and to cut it. Not to cut me, but to cut out the guests. So I might have had Dolores Cahill on a week or two ago. Dolores came on. If you go to Spotify... That show should be an hour and 50 minutes. It'll be less than an hour. They'll have cut out Dolores. Yes, this is really going on. Not just me either. Of course it's not just me. It's happening to many content creators. Many of us. But we soldier on. We don't whinge. We don't cry. We don't bitch. We don't piss. We don't moan. We get on with it, is what we do. Hi to Martin, who says uh, his partner, Linda... Bought him a PlayStation 4 during lockdown because he was so miserable and isolated. He's recently discovered GTA Online. Is that Grand Theft Auto? I think. I think it is. It is very gratifying, he says, pulling off heists and making millions of virtual dollars that can be spent on offices, bunkers, nightclubs, nuclear submarines, penthouses and super yachts. (laughs) When you die in the game, you respawn. 
I guess a bit like our matrix because I very much believe in the afterlife, says Martin. That's a very interesting comment, Martin. Thank you. Ewan says, Richie, this must be a simulation. How we were made by William Neal basically gives the coding sequences of numbers that exist throughout reality. The question is, what is the point of this simulation? If it is indeed a simulation, Ewan. And that, of course, is the question I did put to Rich Terrell. What would be the point of it? And he gave several possibilities. David Icke, you'll have to read David's books, of course, and I couldn't sum up his position on it in a few sentences. But it is a prison construct, effectively. David Icke has always believed. The idea that this is a simulation, it goes back to the 60s. Don't ask me to remember the names of the scientists and the authors. But uh, men and women were writing about this possibility back in the 1960s. And uh, it's fascinating. But I don't know. I suppose if I had to take a punt on the answer, knowing that we would be given the answer, I would probably take a punt on the notion that it may very well be a simulation. Religious people are reluctant to consider it, but I don't think they should be concerned about it because a, if the world is a simulation, and I don't know that it is, it doesn't, that, it's not mutually exclusive with the idea that, you know, the idea that there is a all-powerful benevolent being, that's not mutually exclusive with simulation model or simulation theory. I don't know. I find it fascinating anyway. I find it really fascinating. Of course, the, the film The Matrix, the screenplay, obviously came out of, of that idea, you know. So there you go. Uh, Gaz says, a brick is not a simulation. If it hits you, it's going to hurt. Well, that's right, of course. I think Jean Ann sent me a message about chickens and, and stuff and, and, and life, you know, being real. Bills. Yes, of course. I, I can't argue with any of that. It's a fascinating theory. Rich Terrell said that maybe some future version of ourselves built it. He also said to me, I asked him, was he concerned about machine learning and the singularity? You know, the idea that machines would eventually begin to make decisions for themselves outside of human control and that maybe those machines might think that human beings are unnecessary. Now, if this is a simulation, of course, you might say, well, that wouldn't matter. But if it isn't a simulation, well, then the machines learning for themselves would matter. It could be fatal for us. So I put this to Rich Terrell, who was a really nice fella, really interesting interviewee. I know that people think NASA, they think never a straight answer. Yes, I know. NASA is a cover-up operation. I'm well aware of that. But Rich was interesting. And I said to him, what about the machines becoming more intelligent, becoming self-aware? What about Skynet? What about Cyberdyne systems? It didn't work out well for 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 Sarah Connor. I had to think there for a minute. And Rich Dereal said to me, wait for this, and he really meant it. I know he meant it. I wouldn't be too concerned about the machines becoming intelligent. Sorry, he did say he would be in concerned with the machines becoming intelligent. That might be a problem. But he said he didn't think ultimately it would spell doom for the human race. And I said, why? And he said, well, I think the machines will become bored with the experience of planet Earth and they will leave to explore multiverses and omniverses and galaxies. And he made a powerful case for that during my conversation with him. But I couldn't help thinking of that, that 
Terminator machine in, in, in James Cameron's Terminator film and the sequels and the, the flying machines killing people and the skeletal robots with the red lights in their eyes murdering people and the Matrix and I thought well I don't know I'm not too sure now about Rich and the machines leaving because they find planet Earth boring I'm not too sure about that at all Anywho, this is Cheryl Crow, and in a few minutes' time, I'm going to be joined by a councillor from Lancashire called James Rogerson, Jim Rogerson. You don't want to miss him. Really interesting man. He saw this happening. He saw this coming, did Jim? Way back at the beginning of all this last year. So we'll chat with him soon enough. This is Cheryl Crow then. Cheryl Crow, every day is a winding road. It's the Richie Allen Show. It is from Salford, 10 and a half minutes past six. Couple of things to tell you about. I'm not with you on Thursday. I did mention this last week. I'm going to a party. It's a a party being thrown by my accountants, would you believe, who are very much uh, connected to my great friend Hayden Hewitt. Uh, That's um, my accountants in North Manchester who have been very good to the independent media. Uh, very supportive of Hayden and Trigger Warning and they've been very supportive of the Richie Allen Show uh, as well over the years. Great guy, so I'm going to be... That's an afternoon thing on Thursday. I'm so looking forward to that. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to that. It's been so long. It's been so, so, so long since I've been able to get out and have a couple of drinks. So next week is a full week, by the way. Next week, the... Christmas week, effectively, I'll be with you obviously Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Thursday is the 23rd and I'm thinking what I might do on Thursday, the 23rd, which isn't easy to say. I was thinking that show, we might have a bit of crack. We might just chat. I I might throw the phones open. But if we can avoid doom and gloom, if we can talk about Christmases of yesteryear, I don't know. Your experiences of Christmas in days gone by when maybe Christmas meant a bit more than it does now. We could do that, play a couple of tunes in between the conversations. Maybe we'll do that on Thursday week. That's uh, the 23rd. But before that next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I do have some really uh, interesting guests lined up. I'll tell you more about those a bit later on. But I'm with you today, tomorrow, but I'm away on Thursday. Sunday morning, Melodies, of course, will be on with you this coming Sunday at 10 o'clock, but it will be the last one of 2021. I will be doing a live show on Christmas morning at 10, and and then I'm on holiday for a few days, like most people at that time, at this time of year. So, yeah, okay, I've given you a little bit of a heads up. Shall I get Jim on? Before I get Jim on, let me read one or two comments. A number of you have mentioned smart cities, smart homes and the part that 5G will play in smart homes, smart cities, but also the part that 5G and later on 6G might play in, I don't know, transmitting or broadcasting the multiverse. Excuse me, the metaverse, Facebook's metaverse, which, which they want people to plug into mentally and yes really good questions really good questions 5g of course 6g is in the offing isn't it as well uh (laughs) the mind crazed banjo said maybe andrew marr's face is a glitch in the simulation maybe jim says my toaster is more intelligent than the zombies 
lining up to get the kill shot. Jim, I'll tell you this and I'll tell you no more. You might very well be right, but I don't think that intelligence has got anything to do with this. There was a time when we were not aware of the agendas, when we weren't aware of false flag terrorism, when we weren't aware of 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 crisis actors. We weren't aware of these things. And if somebody had said such things existed, we might have called them blinking mad, silly, stupid, crazy, conspiratorial. So I'm not sure it's got anything to do with intelligence. But look, I might be wrong. I've been known to be wrong many a time. Idris says a friend of his was denied entry to accident and emergency at her local hospital today because she wasn't masked. She's never worn one as she is a survivor of sexual abuse and she was quizzed and mocked at the door, says Idris. I spent three hours with her this afternoon. She was distraught. This cannot go on, says Idris. That is disgusting. The minute the lady said that she was exempt, uh, that should be the end of it. It's astonishing, the things that are happening, isn't it? to turn somebody away from accident and emergency because they're not wearing a mask. It's astounding. We're going to get Jim on the line then. Jim said to me now that when I ring the landline... Uh, right, OK, we've got Jim. Just before we welcome him on, let me read you this. This is from the BBC website last year. Really interesting, this. Really please, Got to give a big shout-out to Tony Gosling for connecting me with Jim. As early as June last year, councillor... Uh, the Conservative councillor, uh, Jim Rogerson from Ribble Valley in Lancashire, uh, was claiming that the dangers of coronavirus were being exaggerated. Now, he was criticised at the time for saying that. He did say, did Jim, that it was terrible that people had died, but that the media was overplaying the risks of the virus. This is way back at the beginning of all of this last year. It's a pleasure to welcome to the programme uh, councillor James Rogerson. Jim, thanks so much for taking the call this evening. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. You're a gentleman for coming on. Can, can you clear something up for me? Are you still a member of the Conservative Party? No. I thought so. And I was announcing you earlier on as a Conservative Party um, councillor, but I thought I'd read something recently that said you'd resigned from the party. Why did you resign? I've just lost well, I've lost all faith in all politicians, full stop. I don't trust any of them anymore. Certainly not uh, at government level, anyway, at the MP level. I think as local councillors, I think there's a lot of fantastic people doing a lot of all parties as well. Not, you know, I'm not no matter what they were, there's a lot of people that genuinely believe they're working hard to help the their uh, constituents, you know, to the general public. And there is a lot of commitment there on all sides. So I, I, I don't want to be discrediting councillors or anything like that. I'm, I'm not there to do that. Because, you know, I, I can talk to parties, you know, people that have other different political persuasions. And I understand it. I can get on with them and talk to them. We might disagree how you fund things, but in principle, um, you know, most people are all of the same ilk. They all want to try and do the best they can for the electorate. It seems to be when they get to Westminster, they're on a different level. The higher up you go, um, they just seem to walk all over. 
you know, the, they want to, everybody, the public are slaves and just to bow down to the masters. And I have lost all, you know, um, respect for the MPs at that level. Now, you know, I mean, yes, I was a member of Conservative uh, Party. I was a Conservative councillor. I did, I've done 26 and a half years now. I did four as a Conservative. Conservative. I was independent for 16 years, you know, still basically Conservative, and I'll, I'll carry the Conservative principles. Well, t to my mind, what are Conservative principles that respect people that work hard and try hard and give people a chance? Now, I think the party nationally now has blown that completely out of water. They don't respect small businesses. They don't respect anybody as work works anymore it seems to be they just want total control and that's what frightens me there's loads to there's, there's loads to kind of unpack there and we'll do that because i i sympathize with pretty much everything you said there in in terms of the last two years and 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 your peers on the council are are you Working, are, are are other councillors feeling like you? Are there other people there expressing what you've expressed to me and what you told the BBC last year? I don't think so. No, I seem to be pretty much a lone voice. I haven't had loads of people coming to support me. I think the respect for the party nationally among certainly some Conservative councillors has, has certainly diminished. And there's probably a lot of others like me that have that similar ilk that you know to me the conservative principles were you know looking after small businesses supporting businesses help people to get on and the people that work hard and thrive should be rewarded uh, i think there is a lot of that there but by being rewarded doesn't mean to say you have to walk all over everybody you know a fair day's work for a fair day's pay you know, when I remember a farmer, he's dead now, but saying to me, business is a two-way thing, lad. He said, if you're selling, you've got to be selling right. But at the same time, the buyer has to be buying right. He said, when them two fall apart, you, any deal breaks up. And it's a fact. So if you're supplying a service to the public or whatever, you've got to be uh, it's a realistic price to make a money, but it's got to be a realistic price that the consumer can afford to pay. And once that falls apart, any any business struggles. Cost of living is spiralling now. That's something we might talk about in a moment. But when when last year did you know, we've got Councillor James uh, Rogerson on the line, uh, folks, Lancashire Councillor. Tell us, uh, Jim, when, at what point last year did you begin to feel that the threat of coronavirus was being exaggerated. When did you begin to, to realise that? Even when we were going into lockdown, right at the beginning, something didn't... I smelt a rat from start. I said, there's more to this than makes the eye. There's a hidden agenda here. There's something not... Uh, didn't ring true with me. You know, I, I had... I was slightly nervous to start with, but I wasn't... Um, over panicking because as soon as he started talking about death numbers and now they were rocketing and we'd emptied the old folks home, uh, hospitals back into old folks homes 
And I said, right at the start, they were used as collateral damage to exaggerate the death numbers. People, the end of their life and whatever, and they were pushed there. The, the virus supposedly rocketed, you know, through the care homes, exaggerated the death numbers. And I saw that right at the beginning. And something didn't ring true. I just couldn't put my hand on it, but, you know, there was no logic to it. What you're describing there, Jim, is murder. Do you believe... Yeah, So, I So do. you think, you think that they genocide. knew... You, you think that they knew that older people were going to die and they did that so that they could exaggerate the numbers. Why would they do that? To drive fear. To drive absolute fear in the public. People were petrified of it. But right, right at the beginning, I think before we went into lockdown, I started questioning. We're talking about all these people dying every day. Hang on. What's the population of the country? 66 Point seven million, million yeah. whatever. Yeah. Even if you take 65 million, whatever, for round numbers. If the average lifespan was under a year, that's 650,000 people die every uh, every year, and when you put, you split that back into days, so there's over just on average there's two thousand people a day dying in this country, or over that, just by average. So, you know, when they mention a thousand people, it sounds, you know, it, it's a lot of numbers, and yeah, you know, I don't want to discredit anybody, but then when you just put, apply logic, and you think. How many people do die every day? How many people do we lose over the year? And it's not... And it's, it sounds like I've, I've tried to belittle people that died with this. I'm not. But the death numbers are not that excessive. Not for a pandemic to shut the old country down. Not You know, when you look at the numbers that we lose every year, through natural thing, you know, on an average 80-year lifespan, you know, it's sad when anybody goes. But the death numbers, what they've called for this pandemic, do not stack up. And I remember somebody saying when they started talking about India and all the people, was it early this year, I think, when India, they were about how many a day were dying. And I remember saying to this person, I said, India has twice, it's 20 times the population of this country. So when they put up 2,000 a day or whatever it was, 20,000 a day, I said, when you look at the numbers, and if you've got the average lifespan, as much as it's a lot of people, it's not that big. But because people here don't realise it, the ordinary person looks at the telly and thinks, wow, all them, it's it's astronomical. And it's all been done to scare the public. For what engine? Jim, we've got Councillor Jim Rogerson on the line from Lancashire. For what end? To scare the public for what reason? Well, they're driving a vaccination agenda, which I believe is genocide. And I've watched <clears throat> when they started pushing the vaccinations, cases rocketed. And they were fairly high through while they were vaccinating all the summer. The cases rise. It tailed off as the vaccinations tailed off in the summer because most people had got both doses, or the people that were going for a mad, cases started dropping a bit. We started the booster jabs, I think it was the 15th of September, something like that. I remember it being announced. And within three days, the cases started rising. 
three days later from starting the vaccination, or definitely four days, the cases, the daily cases started rising. It just occurred to me before, this was a quarter of an hour ago, we've pushed this big drive now for the booster jobs, get everybody to get the booster jobs. Case is rocky. How many of the public are going to end up being proved positive? Test, oh, you've got to isolate. Your family's got to isolate now. So we'll get this big drive for booster jobs over this next two weeks. And how many people are going to be self-isolating in their own home over Christmas? Because they've all got the booster jobs. I just, you know, people listening, just watch that happening. I'll bet the cases start rocketing by the end of this week. Again, numbers will start jumping fast because the big drive with a booster. I'd be very surprised if it doesn't. You said genocide around the jabs. Do, do you mean yeah. that the jabs are, are meant to bump people off? Uh, well, yeah. Um, there was something, there was a website about Ministry of Defence spending, you know, um, worldwide, what each country spent on defence spending, which I saw a few years ago, because I was looking at world populations. So I've got an interest, you know, when people talk about country and what the population are. So I started looking for comparisons to find out what what size countries are in the population. And that this website, it was predicting the population of this country would fall to about 15 million by 2025. That's from over 60 million to, to 15 million. So that is three out of four people gone. Um, what, what website was this again? This was a... It's a Deagle. It was it's a website that was, you know, um, monitoring Ministry of Defence spending. And for every country, it was giving details of what different government's orders, fighter planes and ships and, you know, all Ministry of Defence spending. Now, and it shows all the Western world drastically reducing. The, uh, last time I looked, the population of America, the, which is 300-odd million, yeah. is supposed to fall to 100 million. So this is a forecast, Canada. this is a forecast on, forecast, on this website, yeah. right. yeah. Now, I saw that, oh, it was a few years ago, and I thought, that can't be right. Yeah. They've got it wrong, it's a joke. Did they give any reasons, Jim, on the website as to why well, they thought All they said, they've used official government data and uh, projections, whatever, from official sources to put this together. They weren't stating anything, but they said all this, they were doing what official projections were doing to, going to spend. But when I've looked at it, and now I'll start going back again, that's prediction all the Western world to fall by drastic percentages, reduce the population of all the countries in the Western world, Westernized countries. Uh, Australia, that I think latest one is predicted uh, to fall from 25 million to 15 million or something like that. But these major corporations want control of land. I mean, Klaus Schwab has been on about it with his... Um, the World Economic Forum 2030, 2030 agenda, whatever yeah. it is yeah and looking at that and by then you will own nothing and you'll be happy but somebody's got to own it the major corporations want control of land property and land they've got the minerals in the land they control virtually all the land and minerals in the third world countries 
they don't in the Western world. It's only the Western world where people actually own land. They own the land they're on, you know, the farming. People own their houses. And this, is this why the BBC kept pushing the new normal, get used to the new normal? That's right. There's something coming there that we don't know, but there it, it is serious. And the more, you know, I hope I'm totally wrong with what I'm saying. But day by day, more and more, there's other things come out. And none of it makes me think I am wrong. The more I see, the more more I'm convinced that I'm right. Can I ask you this, Jim? We've we've got Councillor James. If I'm if I'm talking out of turn by calling you Jim, tell me by the way. And, no, uh, Jim is easier to be honest. Is that okay? Mother always called me James. I was always James to my mother. To your mum. Well, that's 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 funny that because for for my mother it was always Richard. But, yeah. but but everybody else, it's it's always been Richie. Um, Jim Rogerson is a very, very experienced public servant. Um, he's been a councillor for many, many years in uh, in, in Lancashire. Uh, you've, I, I'll put some links out later on to where you can read the stories in the BBC. Ribble Valley in Lancashire, which I'm advised is a beautiful part of the world, Jim. I believe it's lovely. It is. It's a marvellous part. Dunsett Bridge in Ribble Valley is supposedly the centre of the United Kingdom. Is that right? So it is a marvellous area to live. You know, it's a rural area, countryside. You know, there is more open space. We're not, you know, overpopulated. I mean, yes, house numbers are growing, but we're not like city centres or anything like that. So we've got space. You know, there is space for people to go out walking and get away and get the fresh air. Sounds idyllic. Sounds idyllic to me living in Salford where everything is mad. I've got Media City just around the corner. It's just, it's crazy here. Jim, uh, what you've described to me is something that I consider. You know, I, I think about these things as well and I speak to people, academics, I think I mentioned this to you this morning, and they... The, the academics who come on this programme, and th these are very credible people from very, very well-known universities, and they feel the same way that you do, that the jabs are dangerous, that, you know, that there's some sort of depopulation thing going on. Sometimes it's hard to even believe that we're saying these things out loud. But, but I want to ask you, was it just last year that you began to think about these things, or were you aware that things weren't quite right with society even before the, the whole COVID thing? Not, I've always sceptical, been sceptical of big government, but not, I thought, you know, when Boris come in with the, um, and got leader of the Conservatives, I thought he'd, he'd pushed to get us out of Europe. And I wasn't convinced he was the best one. I mean, the European thing was one, at the election there, uh, you know, uh, when we had the vote on Europe, I actually voted, I ummed and odd, I ummed and odd, and I voted Remain. And I voted... The main thing that made me vote Remain was because I didn't think we had politicians who's got the nows, the strength, or whatever, to do a good deal and get us out of Europe. I thought the, the uh, politicians, you know, they just weren't strong enough to do a good deal to get country out and back as a, as a nation. That was the final reason I voted uh, Remain. At the end of the day, I've regretted it totally since. You know, I should have been out because I was a set-up fan because I could see both sides. And uh, the only side by staying in was um, supposedly, um, you know, 
as a nice big group together and we should all be able to work and get on together. I have no people going about immigration in this country. The numbers should be controlled. But as far as people coming in, I'm not worried about where anybody comes from. If they want to come in, come to our country, accept the basic rules of our country and work and get on, they should be allowed to do so. Amen. That's, you know, we should all, we're born onto the world, we should all be free enough to travel and go wherever we want. Amen, Jim. As long as we accept the custom and we we do a bit to pay away, you know, feed, look after ourselves and feed ourselves, we should all be entitled to that right to travel anywhere. So, you know, I'm a great man for freedom and everything else. And I'm afraid our freedoms have disappeared. You know, Desmond Swain said today, that's a great point you made about freedom of movement. I'm an Irish guy living here. I voted to leave the European Union. And if I'd been in Ireland, I would have voted against the various treaties. Well, I did over the years, the, the Nice Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty. But look, I, I, I agree. Of course, you, you need a migrant workforce. But many of us voted for Brexit because we felt that like over the years you know bed capacity in the NHS was reduced by half um, you know there was cuts this is Labour and the Conservative but it's Labour and Conservative governments you've got all these cuts everywhere so the existing population you've already got difficulties servicing the needs of the existing population so if you're doing that and you're growing by a city the size of Swansea every year it's going to be a problem I absolutely endorse everything you said there as a migrant worker myself I endorse that Jim um, I, I want to I, I want to ask you Desmond Swain who, who's been on this program he gave I thought a very emotional speech today they're debating whether or not to bring in plan B you and I know it's a joke. It's it's coming in because the Labour Party, the worst opposition party in the history of parliamentary democracy, in the history, in my opinion, of parliamentary democracy, Labour Party is just going to wave all of this through. Desmond Swain accused Boris Johnson today of basically doing away with democracy and handing control of the country over uh, to uh, to scientists and, and medicine people. Um, he's right, isn't he? Well, yeah. Uh, he's, he's right and he's wrong because I wouldn't uh, not just a scientist because the problem is it's only certain scientists he, Boris is on the power of the country over to the major corporations the multinational corporations and the money men at the top uh, yes scientists the scientists that are paid by them that speak their word yeah but not how many scientists have left? How many scientists have been shut down, not allowed to speak because they're not towing the official line? We're not allowing debate and uh, nobody to put an alternative view forward. You can't put an alternative view. So when you can't put an alternative view, there is definitely something going on. I mean, you mentioned what Boris there. This uh, all palaver over the parties, supposedly parties, lockdown parties and everything else last year with the big one, there was supposed to be some in November and early December and the big one on the 18th of December London was still open then, although most a lot of the country was shut on shutdown, the pubs were shut and everything else the Friday 18th of December 
was when lots of businesses in London, a lot of people finished. It gave all the MPs and their staff a chance to get home. It was Saturday night at tea time, four o'clock or five o'clock, when he Boris put the country into lockdown and shut us down for Christmas. So everywhere was they were still open in London then. So I'm not saying the parties and the one or two might bent the rules, but they were. London was still open for people having things. It might have been supposedly at tables, but it, a lot up here, up the north, we were all shut down. That's never been picked up. It that hasn't. Was, and why? Why that is that? Put out to hide something. There's something else going on, and that's a distraction from uh, what really is going on. Or if that's the best that the opposition can do to bring the government up, even though some of their own party members should have been highlighting that as far as the opposition goes. Now, if they if Labour wanted to be an opposition, when there's supposedly so many Tories that are going to vote against the government, if Labour can't get with the Tories to embarrass them in this, who are they sticking up for? She was asked. They're not sticking um, up as our oppos- opposition, are they? No, they're not. They're not sticking up for working men and women. It, it claims to be the party uh, of the yeah. of the working man. Rachel Reeves was asked this. She might be the shadow chancellor. Maybe I I can't remember which ministerial shadow cabinet position she has. But she was asked this on Sky this morning. Why don't you give a bloody nose to Johnson and vote with his own if his own party don't trust him? And Reeves gave, oh, we're not playing party politics, we're in a public health emergency, uh, we're going to vote with the, the new measures, we're going to do uh, the right thing. What I want to ask you is, Jim, you brought up something very important there. The public were up in arms about news that Johnson maybe had a quiz and maybe there was a party for, for Downing Street staff. Can you help me understand something? Why are they so quick to get up in arms about something so trivial, but they are almost incapable of becoming enraged at arbitrary, ridiculous restrictions and rules that are destroying their financial futures. What's wrong with people, Jim? Why can't people see what's happening? All these politicians have been bought, certainly the leaders of the thing, have all been bought by Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, the Bilderberg Group, all, all these elite clubs, that nobody knows what their agenda, the proper agenda is. There's no minutes made public of what's discussed. It's all the the global elite controlling everything. And now we've got it through the media and everything else. They're all being censored. You know, small people struggle to get anything out because you have to fit the official narrative. And something I I saw somewhere that... uh, all these people were all went to the school um, they had for Klaus Schwab had created a, a school or something for training leaders and all these top politicians have all been to the school they're all at university together so they're all they're all in the same club it just depends which party they stick up for so at the end of the day it seems all the big politicians are just sticking up for the major corporations they don't want small businesses. They don't want the individual people. You're just consumers. Uh, so long as we protect big business. And that's certainly, since Boris came in, I don't think we've ever had a, a leader that's protected big businesses so much. But having said that, probably Tony Blair did. 
because when he was prime minister and they did this, was it network rail? I can't remember the privatisation of the rail. They created all these fancy companies. These people on millions of pounds a year supposed to be MDs, CEOs of yeah. all these companies, failing and getting massive payoffs to leave. And he was supposed to be one looking after the working man's money, and all they did was benefit the major corporations again. Absolutely. So can I can I just jump in, Jim? None of them are interested in the ordinary person. No, they're not. They never were. You mentioned the school there, which which I'm aware of because I, it's come up on the program. Councillor Jim Rogerson on the program. Jim just mentioned something that Klaus Schwab set up back in the early nineties. It was called the Global Leaders for Tomorrow School. And uh, it was picked up again in the early 2000s as the Young Global Leaders School. And there are a number of people very prominent in what's been happening in recent years and what's been happening in the last two years who went to this particular school, including people like Jacinda Ardern. Uh, Gareth mentioned this on the programme last night. Uh, uh, Schallenberg, uh, Sebastian Kurtz, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, they, 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 you name it, they've been at uh, this particular Trudeau school. In Canada was Trudeau in Canada, well said, Jim, was another one. Yeah, that's the thing about it, isn't it? If, uh, the media is not going to do this research. I mean, it's right there for them. If, if, if uh, Panorama wanted to expose this tomorrow night on the BBC, it could be ended, Jim, in a half an hour. But the, the, the mass media, the corporate media, national media like my... RTE, like RTE in Ireland, uh, the BBC here, there's a conspiracy amongst media channels to not talk about this stuff and to keep it as hidden as they possibly can. Has that been a huge surprise to you in the last two years, the media conduct? Well, yes, it has, because I didn't realise how controlled they were. But, you know, as, as days go on, as the weeks go by, we, it just becomes more and more apparent how much control is influenced over them because they do not ask the awkward questions. There's very few interviews when they have politicians on any of these things that stick into them now at all. Um, it is a sad day. We need, we need a political party that wants to back Britain and back the people, um, not the multinational corporations. We need somebody that will back Britain uh, and let the public, Start and buy as much stuff as you can from little independent private businesses. Try and support them. But we've got things since, um, oh, the big delivery, Amazon now, isn't it? Everybody goes on there, you can get it next day. You know, big, big, big businesses can't get all the supplies, but you can go on Amazon and get it delivered next day. Because they've allowed these corporations to come in and take control of everything. The major corporations pay very little tax. You know, a lot of them workers are, are they're like slave drivers. The, the workers, they're working hard for very little money, push the limits. The big corporations don't make the profit because they can move it from country to country. And likewise, we look at all the big accounting companies, PricewaterhouseCoopers, I can't think, there's a few of them, I can't just think of them. They've all been prosecuted for fiddling stuff, and yet they're all the ones that's working with the Treasury, making new rules. When the Treasury comes out with new, oh, we're going to tax this or tax that, the big corporations, the accounting corporate, corporates, are working with the Treasury to come up with it, 
So they know what's coming beforehand. They've they've had a hand in it. They have discussion papers, so they can advise the corporations what they need to do to get round it. And they're yes, yeah, yeah. And they're making bets. They're making bets with insider knowledge on the yeah. uh, stock markets of uh, of the world as well. It's just criminality everywhere you look. And Jim, we we've got about five or six minutes left. This is not Boris Johnson's agenda. So the sixty-four million dollar question is. Why does Johnson go along with it? Is Johnson compromised somehow? I would say majority of the politicians have been compromised, uh, probably in the same way that Prince Andrew was, by these global elites. I've got them in there. Uh, I've forgotten now what they call these women they put round like honey pot or something. Honey traps, yeah. Honey trap. Yeah. I'm convinced now that they've all been... They've all got something on them because none of them will speak out. And the further up the tree they are, the bigger ones at the top. There, uh, there's something there. They, they've been trapped into something. Um, you know, from. I mean, you find me a bloke that generally wouldn't, you know, when they had a woman chasing them, that wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't be there to take advantage of it. Yeah. You know, the. It's been human nature for thousands of years, hasn't it? The, the opposites attract and whatever. Um, you know, they've been used, you know, as the old saying goes, sex sells, and sex has been used for probably two or three thousand years more for selling stuff. You know, we don't know how far we can go back in history. But that there's something there that's controlled. They've all been bought, because uh, none of them really come out and speak out. Doesn't matter which uh, party you look at, they all seem controlled. They're all frightened to speak out, and I think they've been somewhere. They're semi being blackmailed, in or being promised a fortune. But you know, I'm I'm convinced. If we look at the Nuremberg Code, when that was formed after the war because of what Hitler did, you know, and he was forcing uh, medical procedures on people against their will. And that's why the Nuremberg Code was formed. So now what we're doing, we're trying to mandate that every member of the public has a medical procedure against the will with an experimental vaccine that we do not know what the long-term side effects of. We haven't had 12, we've only just started vaccinating 12 months ago. So we don't, we don't know anything about the long-term consequences of what this vaccine will be. It's a completely new style of vaccine. It's not a traditional vaccine that everybody had years ago when you all got your traditional um, mumps and measles, rubella, MMR, all the different vaccinations we had as children. This is a complete different uh, style. It's gene therapy. Nobody knows what the long-term effects of that is going to be. And they, and they indemnified and, yeah. the companies who made the, the jabs against yeah. prosecution and against yeah. um, people claiming against them. And it's still in phase three trials. And there is a yellow card reporting system on the government website. And if you read it, Jim, it's obvious that these jabs are causing harm, real harm to it, people. It is serious. How many sports players are dropping? Even people of collapsing in the crowd now at some of these sports games. Yeah. We've never had this amount of sportsmen ever collapsing. You know, and somehow somebody saying, oh, well, because of lockdown, they weren't as fit as they should be. 
the young people, these young sportsmen, keeping fit. You know, most people can run a lot to start with. So not to create all these art problems, there is definitely something in there that's going on. Tell me this, Jim, before we um, wrap it up, and thanks for your time. Is there... I mean, it's 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 going down this Orwellian dystopian road, and life. If if they're allowed to get away with this World Economic Forum, this Davos agenda, if they get away with it, life will be unbearable. We'll be living in a prison planet. Can we stop it, Jim? Finally, with sixty seconds left, can we stop this? I would hope so, but we need the public to start and stand up and realise. But it's very difficult trying to convince somebody. And the old, what's the old saying? It's, it's far easier to con somebody than to convince them they've been conned. Yeah. Um, that that's that's my big worry. But I think see what happens and people start dying. Death will rocket after Christmas. I'm, sh- I'm you know I hope I'm wrong, but I would say the deaths we get in a day will be double in January of what they are now. I hope I'm wrong, but. To me, it's just going to rock it. And I think the cases will rock it and people, they'll be on lockdowns at home because they've tested positive for Christmas. Do you think, just finally, if that does happen, and it might very well happen, and some very credible scientists have said on this programme that it might happen, that these jabs might start killing people, do you think that might be the tipping point, that enough people might say something is very badly wrong here? Uh, Some... Yes, some people will, and especially anybody that started listening to like the conversation we've had now, the other programmes, or anybody that just questions a bit, and they see people start dying, and people, you know, suddenly going, suddenly going ill, people might think. But I think what we do is look at the daily deaths and where the daily deaths are running now, and I believe for the last three months they've been running way above average. So it's not the COVID deaths; it's everything else that's going on so the vaccine it might not be covid that kills you but it'll be other things that because the vaccine has reduced your immunity jim just before you go um this might be a blast from the past um i'm in salford and a friend of mine an irish friend of mine from county mayo is in salford his name is john parsons um you might know john as the cow comfort man do you know who i'm talking about yeah John says hello. He just tuned into the programme and he's heard you and he can't believe it. So he says he says a big uh, hello to you, a big diagwit, as we say in Ireland. So uh, John says hello. So there you are. That's nice. So, yeah, well, hello to everybody there and uh, I wish all your listeners and everything, uh, you know, a very happy Christmas. Uh, let's hope we have a happy new year, but I have a feeling for lots of people it won't be. Jim, it'll be nice to catch up with you sometime again in the future. Thanks so much for your time today. I really mean that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Uh, Jim, excuse me. That's uh, Jim Rogerson, uh, councillor, Ribble Valley in uh, Lancashire. Jim's been a councillor for nearly three decades. Uh, public servant, a very, very well-respected public servant, by the way, uh, there. He spoke out uh, in June last year, spoke out against lockdown and said that the cases were being exaggerated, that COVID was being exaggerated. 
obviously he was targeted for saying that at the time. But I do want to give a, a special mention to Tony Gosling because Tony got in touch with me last night and said, Richie, you should have Jim on the programme. Uh, I think Tony has interviewed, I'm pretty sure Tony has interviewed Jim in uh, the recent past. So thanks to him for that. You're listening to The Richie Allen Show, live from BBG Towers here in Salford. Uh, shall I do some comments? I've got some comments to read. I've got to bring them up. I'll do the comments now in a second. Okay, No, I'll do them now. I'll do them now. I'll do them now. Alright. I was going to do something else there briefly and then I realised I hadn't got it lined up. That's me. That's me all over. I was listening to Jim. I was supposed to put something in the audio bank and I didn't. Okay. Uh, Craig has been on to say, let's be honest, they've trialled the heart attack excuse with politicians who have gotten in the way, such as John Smith and Robin Cook. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, says Craig. Yeah, I hear you. John Smith, I remember that well. And of course, we all know uh, Robin Cook. We all know what happened to Robin Cook. Uh, Darth Sidious says placenta can't form in spike jabbed. Stephen says Richie, your guest is correct about the Deagle website regarding depopulation. That's been taken down, hasn't it? That website, but there are screen grabs in the Wayback Machine, I think you can see it. The Deagle website with the forecasts for world population numbers. Very interesting that. Dr. Catherine Horton was discussing the Deagle website and warning the world about what it said two years before the scam-demic started. Yeah, Catherine has been on with me a few times over the years. In fact, I was the first person to speak with uh, Dr. Catherine Horton. Um, Oxford University, of course. Uh, hi to Lucy who says, hello, Jim. She might know Jim there. JC says, the children is the worst. They're already dying in countries that have introduced the jabs. In some countries that are jabbing children, children are dying, alleges JC there. Thanks uh, for that comment. To leave a comment, go to richieallen.co.uk. Wayne says, the majority do not need to be blackmailed, in his opinion. In his opinion. As he says, as they are evil. That's speculation, Wayne. We don't know. You say they don't need to be blackmailed because they are inherently evil. Now, you might be right. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm not sure I go along with that. But that doesn't matter. That's your opinion. He says they are fully on board with the agenda as they've been brought up through the bloodline and secret society networks. There will be a lot of people who will agree with Wayne. I think there's a balance there somewhere. I don't think they're all, or most of them even, are inherently evil. I do go back to Godfather 2. Uh... Can't think of the guy's name, the character's name. Pat Geary. It came to me in the flash, in the blink of an eye. Senator Pat Geary. Michael Corleone wants him to do something for him. And Geary says that he's in charge, he's the guy, and uh, Michael Corleone will dance to his tune, that Geary will eventually give him what he wants, but that Michael Corleone will pay through the nose. Anyway, Michael Corleone eventually um, get somebody to knock Pat Geary out using some sort of, presumably, using some sort of a potion or some sort of a drug in a drink. Then they place the senator in a bed. They murder a prostitute and they place her in the bed next to Geary. And Geary is Michael Corleone's forever because uh, Tom Hagen, the consigliere for Michael Corleone, goes and sorts it all out. You're a friend of our senator. We'll sort all of that out. And I think 
not as extreme as that. But I think that's how they compromise civil, uh, sorry, uh, public servants and and politicians. That's how they do it. They do it through honey traps, as Jim said. They do it through getting finagling people, getting people into financial situations that are illegal or fraudulent and then revealing that to the target, which will be the politician, and saying, this could destroy you and your family, but look, uh, you're going to work with us, we've got things going on, you know, we're, we're going to have you work for a company, then we're going to get you out of the company, we're going to get you into politics. I think that's how it works. I'm not saying Wayne is wrong, because he might be right. Some of you will believe they are all inherently evil. I don't think they are. I don't think they start out like that. Not all of them anyway. But, as I say a thousand times, what the bloody hell do I know? Thank you so much to John Klychek. What a man. Coming on in Air One. And thanks to Jim Rogerson. Uh, councillor, greatly experienced councillor, formerly Conservative councillor, Ribble Valley Council in Lancashire. Really enjoyed both of my guests today. We'll do it all again tomorrow at 5 o'clock UK time. Until then, leaving you with Andrew Strong's Mustang Sally cover. Bye for now. Take care of yourself. Bye now. Mustang.